Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you've joined me today. The topic of this episode is not at all what I told you last time it would be. I think it's much better. I had another opportunity to do an in-depth interview with Ange Roll, who is a beekeeper, a bee educator, and runs They Keep Bees out of Massachusetts and Florida, I believe. I interviewed Ange in August of 2020, believe it was episode 71, and if you want to go back to that one and get an idea on who Ange is and what the specialty of their business is, please go to that episode. But the topic that I got to talk to Ange about is the results of some studies that Ange B., Sam Comfort, and a couple other researchers have been working on through SARE grants. I'd been following these grants with close attention because they were on topics that are deep and close to my heart, and that is queen quality, one, and queen rearing techniques for backyard beekeepers. And as you can tell, this is all stuff that I'm very interested in. So we had a long and rambling interview. After this short introduction, I'm going to jump right in to that interview. The first portion was just a get-to-know-you chat and a little bit about the project and the funding and how it came to be and what questions they were looking at. So that'll be this one, episode 95. Then next, episode 96, will be the back portion of the interview in which we dove more deeply into the study result. And then there's going to be a couple of bonus items for patrons. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But I'll pause right here and say for these next couple few episodes, if you will get online and go to theykeepbees.com, T-H-E-Y-K-E-E-P-B-E-E-S.com, there are some free resources there. And seeing those is actually what started this process. At the website, theykeepbees.com, if you go to the menu in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see some menu items, and down toward the bottom, there's Queen School. If you click on Queen School, you will discover this little treasure trove of resources that are all free and available to you. If you scroll down toward the bottom, there is the list of the main resources, and I think these are so good, they're worth printing out. (laughs) The first is said the first link there's a link that says download our multimedia queen rearing guide this is a fascinating guide which is even so wonderful that online you can for each topic they'll have videos on how to do that procedure it's really a lovely document then uh, there the next link is get our walk away split recipe and fact sheet this is a great handout again that summarizes their research findings but also in a way that you can use the techniques in your own yard and then the third resource on the website is check out our queen research fact sheet and that is the one i believe from the first round of grants where they looked at comparing the quality of traditional grafted queens to so-called emergency queens or queens that you and I might make via different types of split. And then toward, if you scroll back up toward the middle of the page, you will see a little mini poster for the series of talks they are doing that is the online portion of Queen School. These also are free, which is amazing. The first Zoom presentation was by Sam Comfort. That happened on January 24th. Hopefully you can get a hold of a recording because if you sign up for this Queen School, if you miss the actual presentation, you'll get an email with the link to the recording. So once you're signed up, you're in. 
And the next Zoom presentation is February 20-something. I don't have it right here in front of me. Anyway, it's a great series of kind of get-to-know-you sessions with various beekeepers and queen breeders on the topic of sustainable, high-quality queens that you can make yourself. And then there's an in-person component for those who are able to go at They Keep Bees in Massachusetts this summer. It's a whole world. I wanted to go ahead and get this out to you quick so that you could get signed up in time for the next queen presentation. Hopefully get to go back and see Sam Comfort's presentation. It was wonderful. And I'll probably do... um, do a kind of a talk through and review of everything I learned in that presentation later. But in this particular series of podcasts, so today will be the first portion of the talk I had with Ange. The next episode will be the back portion of the talk I had with Ange, where we dove more deeply into the specifics, the study findings on queen rearing methods and different techniques and what effect various items had on the quality of the queen, if they had an effect. That stuff was fascinating. And then I'm going to produce two bonus podcasts for the patrons. Yes, this is a shameless plug for you to please join our patron community over at patreon.com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. And the bonus over there, the patrons have their own podcast channel. You can copy and paste it. Once you join, you can copy and paste it into your podcast player. You will get all the usual free and public podcasts, but you'll also get the occasional bonus podcast. And this upcoming bonus is a is a short snippet of the conversation that I saved just for patrons. It was a tangent in the discussion with Ange on the topic of making medicine from your mistakes. And Ange's response to this was just so beautiful, I wanted to share it. And then the larger bonus that I hope you will find valuable is I am going to just do a talk through and deep dive on all these findings and how they will affect my practice in my yard, as well as some tips on the various techniques and things I've figured out by trial and error around here. So that will be a whole special bonus for the patrons, and I would love for you to join me. So to give you an overview on what Ange and Sam and some other collaborators have been working on, they have been doing research upgraded research from what you and I do when we experiment with things in our backyard (laughs) and what both of these folks have been experimenting with for years. But they basically designed a study that would pass muster, pass all the statistical controls of a real live scientific study. And they have been looking at the comparison of all the traditional grafted queens, the kind that we usually get if we buy a queen from someone, Grafting is a technique used by queen rearers to make a whole bunch of one type of queen. It is something that I did learn. I can do it. I'm not great at it, but I can do it. But the real problem with grafting for me is I just don't need that many queens from one queen mother at any given time. And so, as you've probably heard in the last couple of years on this podcast, I have drifted back to what I call frame-based queen rearing what Sam Comfort calls bee's choice queen rearing, which means that I as a beekeeper don't select the larva from which I'm going to make a queen or from which I'm going to fool the bees into making a queen. But the bees pick which larva they're making into a queen. We'll get into what all that means later. But I am very excited about all this research because for the first time, to my knowledge, there's actual data that emergency queens or the kind of queen that is 
produced when any of us does a split in our hives, that their quality can be just the same, just as good as the best quality grafted queen. We've all been told forever from the beginning, in my case, that emergency queens are always second are always kind of a second level quality to a grafted queen. That emergency queens are basically third place winners. And maybe the first, the very first would be a swarm queen. The second would be a grafted queen. And then third would be those lowly emergency queens. Well, lo and behold, when you actually study it and control for some factors in the making of emergency queens, turns out they can be just as good or better, depending, the grafted queens that we're so used to buying. I love this because what it does is it enables the backyard beekeeper who has good skills and attention to detail of the various factors that increases the quality to be able to make all the queens they might need for their own yard, to swap with friends, maybe to provide their club, and not have to worry about setting up grafting tables and cell builder yards and mating nukes and all that type thing. Now, you can go there if you want to. And I I hope more people will. But for most of us, we just don't need all that. There are simpler ways to do it. And when the ways are simple, more of us will try it. And the other thing that has has come across to me in, in the research I've done on queen rearing in recent years is when you talk to a professional queen rearer, the methods that they use are very much adapted to raising a whole bunch of queens, having them all get ready at an exact same time, running them all through mating nukes, and then selling them all at the same time. Their techniques are honed and focused on all that. The backyard beekeeper needs virtually none of that. What we need is a good quality queen or a few, a handful that we might use. We might not have access to a whole bunch of different yards. We might not have access to the buckets and buckets of bees that are required to set up cell raisers. So anyway, I am so excited about the research that Sam and Ange have led because to me it is so important to to have the numbers to show that what we are doing in our backyards, raising queens, if we adjust and control for some of the factors that affect queen quality, that we can be producing high quality queens for ourselves and for our friends and for our clubs. So here's the intro piece. Please enjoy this and come back soon for the second portion. And please join us over at Patreon for the bonus portions. Enjoy. Ange Roll, welcome back to Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am delighted to have you. I want to hear what have you been up to in the past year or so? So it's been a busy, been a busy time. I think something that happened for us is that with the onset of the pandemic, we've really had a lot of opportunity to focus in on our bees, to do some research that we were dreaming about before, and to take that research, publish it, and turn it into content that we can use for educating people about queens and really starting to you know, break down the barriers of access that folks have to learning about queen production at a small mid or large scale. Well, I have been following you you all the the group of you that are that are working on this project from the very beginning, partly because I have I I'm just thrilled, let me just say, that y'all seem to be breaking down that 
truism that we were all taught in early B school about emergency queens basically suck and you are going to need to buy mm-hmm. queens. Mm-hmm. I know in my own apiary after a few years and I mean, I was just making splits to keep them from swarming because that's what I was taught to do. And then I would find that the the bees choice queens, as, as you all call them, that they were great. And I got some great queens. Now, it was mixed for sure, because at that time, all I need, knew to do was a walkaway split. But I kept mm-hmm. saying, I'm liking my queens. I'm liking my queens a lot. And so it was mm-hmm. wonderful to see actual research and data going on to compare emergency queens or, um, you know, split queens with grafted queens that are, for most people, purchased from elsewhere. So can you talk Mm -hmm. about, uh, just talk about how y'all got started on the whole project? Yeah, sure. So the the project rolled out in like two separate um, funding sets. We got funding from this uh, organization called Northeast Fair or Northeast Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. And what they do is they fund farmers, they fund um, universities, and they fund farm collaboratives to do on-farm research um, that may benefit the industry. And so a lot of their, their funding goes into other farm and agricultural projects, but they do fund apicultural projects as well. Um, and so the first project we pitched actually wasn't about walkway splits. It was about something called 48-hour queen cells. And initially, we were trying to figure out an easier way to make queen cells um, that you could ship and trade. But at the same time, we also wanted to sneak in a little bit of of, uh, content about walkway splits. So we did this comparison between the 10-day queen cell, which is your traditional queen cell. You graft it. You put it into a cell raiser. um, You take it out. 10 to 11 days later, you put it into a mating nook and then the queen goes on her flight and then she comes back and you catch that queen. Usually that's done by a queen producer, queen breeder, queen rearer, someone that's got a, an intermediate to advanced understanding of queen and mating biology and has also the, the volume of bees to be able to both produce queens and produce the drones that are necessary to mate with those queens. So it's quite complex. But then what we realized as we're doing these 48-hour cells is that we were still doing the hardest part, which is the grafting and making sure that you get really strong cell racers, right? So like there's multiple points in the process of producing queens where something can go wrong. You could graft your tiny little larva and your cell raiser could not accept it. Your cell raiser could be built and have a rogue queen in it, or it could be built and um, have a laying worker in it, or it could be built and have open larvae in it that your bees would then tend to more than they tended to your grafted larvae because they tend to be bonded to their own brood. And so there are all these points where something can go wrong and where you really have to have a high skill level and understanding to execute these, these two pieces of the puzzle that you need to produce queens. So we started then pondering, okay, well, <laughs> if that's still too hard, what's the way that we make this even easier? Uh, and what we came up with was walkaway splits. And not only walkaway splits, but how do we trial multiple types of walkaway splits using different hive styles, using different configurations, using different ages of comb, um, using different amounts of brood, different volumes of bees, and see which ones produce the best queen so that we could end up at the end with a recipe where we could say, 
step one, step two, step three, step four, boom, you've got a queen, right? That really makes it simple. The other thing that that does is it makes the genetic diversity in your apiary go up. Because when you're grafting, often you're grafting from one queen and you're grafting multiple larvae from said quote unquote breeder queen or your selected queen in your apiary, you're ending up with only daughters from that queen. When you're doing a walkway split, you're giving the bees the choice and you're presumably making multiple walkway splits from multiple queens. So you're actually getting more genetic diversity. And the more that we understand about honeybees in general, but also Varroa sensitive traits, the more we understand that we don't understand that much. <laughs> so we have always, we have thought for several years that this very specific trait of grooming or Varroa sensitive hygienic behavior, uncapping capped cells and grooming uh, bees grooming the mites off of each other was the most important thing to select for. But more and more research in the field is being published and shows that there are uh, potentially other traits that we don't even understand um, that are helping bees be resistant to Varroa. And so what are the ways that we raise our bees and then select from that genetically diverse material to potentially have bees who are resistant to Varroa that might not be quote-unquote Varroa-sensitive hygienic? The other thing about um, genetic diversity that is really incredible for your apiary is that if you have certain disease and mite resistances and you have like a collapse, that you won't lose all of the genetic material that you've been working with. And so we're really trying to foster being able to have a rich amount of queen material to select from and also to make queen production simpler. Now, I want to say something because I feel like if I was in a room of queen producers, they would have this argument. So let's just put it out there, right? A lot of times when folks are making walkaway splits, they're not thinking about drone saturation, which is the number of drones that's necessary for a queen to be able to mate well with drones. My response to that is, I think that that's important, but I actually think that that could be achieved with smaller apiaries if folks were collaborating across a region. So for example, if you and five of your neighboring apiaries worked together and you were making walkaway splits um, and also allowing some of the hives that you collectively had to grow up into drone producing colonies, which are really just letting the hives get big enough so that about 20 to 25% of the colony is drones. Drones that are sexually mature enough to mate with those queens. So I think that we can still achieve the drone saturation, but it takes a little bit more um, collaboration if you're working at a small scale. If you're working at a mid to large scale, you're easily able to achieve that drone saturation because you've got a lot of bees. But yeah, essentially, we wanted to look at all of these ways of simplifying queen production so that people would be less reliant on, produce, on purchasing queens from out of their region and would be building genetic stock that's diverse and adapted to the bioregion where they are from the bees that they have that are surviving year after year in their location. Um, and simplifying that means that more people are going to be emboldened to try it, and we have this potential for localized genetic stock to really bloom. I, right now, we're thinking about up and down the East Coast, but I think that this could happen across the continent and across the world. Well, I, I am so in love with anything that promotes localized bees and I know that takes a long long time but it is it's dawned on me many times that for example you're talking about northern queens I'm thinking of Vermont and Michigan where it gets 
cold and stays cold for a long period of time. And it's, it just seems to make sense to me that pure cold tolerance, I mean, like for here, here in the mountains of, of North Carolina, we can have these snaps where it's as if we're in Vermont for 72 hours. <laughs> and then three days later, we're in Alabama for 72 hours. So it, it's, right. it's interesting to me that, you know, a queen that might be beautifully suited for Alabama, I know that queen's not going to be doing that, you know, probably not as great as, say, a Vermont queen. But then I've also come to understand that that's not really the skill set that I need my genetic pool to have either. You know, what I need my genetic pool to have is this incredible resilience in of of uh, change, you know, of up and down. And uh, right. Yeah. So I'm loving what y'all are doing. I see that, you know, the climate, I mean, we all see this, I hope. But the climate is changing and shifting everywhere. And that adaptation, that genetic for adaptation is going to become more and more important. And potentially, you know, you could want some northern genetic stock in your apiary. And then you could also want some southern genetic stock in your apiary. And you having the diversity of those bees is really going to help them adapt to the localized climate over time, you know, and not, it's, I'm not trying to say no one buy queens, because obviously I have a business where I sell queens. <laughs> but, but what is the way that you're able to take those queens, winter them, see how they do in your region and select from them in a way that continues to promote that localized adaptation. And we're going to need these who are able to adapt and able to continue to thrive wherever we are, because we are seeing so much shift in the climate and then the forage and what's available and when it's available and how that impacts all of our pollinators over the long term is something I don't even think that we understand or know yet. Yeah, all that makes sense. And on going back to that note about you selling queens, I happen to come by some of your stock in the form of a queen cell. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I can report to you that they, I had a lot of light hives in the fall because we had this dry fall and mm-hmm. we had a lot of light hives. The They Keep Bees Queen, and she's of course crossed with... Um, the the stock here they were rock heavy rock heavy I was like I love awesome. these yeah so they're they're uh, <laughs> uh, I have to brag on you and uh, Corey Stevens are I just uh, the queens I've seen so far from both of you have have been pretty amazing. Well, that makes me very happy. Thanks. I don't even have to do my own self-promotion. Well, I'm very here. fond. I'm so <laughs> fond. And actually, I, ha- I know another friend who, uh, who, who got, a, got a sell as well. And both of us are like, oh, how's, how's that one doing? You know, because we're, we're pretty excited. Yeah, it just, that's so cool to me that, you know, we, we take a northern line and then we adapt it to an Appalachian, like cross it in, with an Appalachian line. And then we have a bee who's got a northern adaptation to being able to handle the cold mixed with a bee that's able to handle those really wild spikes. Um, And I know, obviously, with drones, haploid genetics being what they are, you've got all kinds of drone genetics in that queen, but you're you're starting to just have this practice of crossing these different adaptations and becoming more confident in do A, doing that, and then B, tracking those queens to see how they do over time and potentially breeding from them. So it's just even just that, like, sort of describes what I think is so great about what we're doing, which is that folks get the skills and then they're still, you know, they're still purchasing queens, but then they're able to mix and match and see 
what works for their bioregion and what doesn't and call the things that don't work and continue to propagate the, the queens that do. That to me is really fun. I have to, it, it becomes a kind of collector thing. I'm like, oh, I need some of that. And mm-hmm. I need some of this <laughs> to mix <laughs> and mix in the batter, you know, because I, I, at some point, at some point, I think I stopped trying to really choose uh, a particular trait in in my own yard. I really just de- now default to diversity and an overall good bee. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, because I feel like they know more about what they're going to need in the future long after I'm gone than I could possibly even think about. So. <laughs> oh, that's so true. So are you going to be available this year to speak and present to bee clubs um, on Zoom or in person or anything? Yeah, and we started doing a bit of that. Um, you know, we got the results from the study, which basically compared, you know, our walkway splits, our 10-day cells and our, our two-day cells and showed that there, in an apiary where there was an abundance of drones, that there was no difference in the quality of those queens. And we looked at them by sending them to uh, Dr. Tarpey and his lab from North Carolina to evaluate their morphometric analysis, the quality of the sperm and their spermatheca, their size. And then we also did a field analysis of their brood patterns, the density of bees that were uh, with them once they were mated, and the take, meaning like how many queens actually even made it back before they got eaten by birds or decimated <laughs> in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we also, on top of that, looked at a lot of walkaway splits figured out what makes the best walkaway split and produced this uh, really great info sheet that's got information about the findings as well as that recipe. And so we've started sharing that. Um, We did all this work with our friend Sam at Anarchy Apiaries. Each of us has been sharing a different element of that work in talks. And we'll continue to do that. And I'm really excited to be able to get into clubs and get into meetings and talk about what we found. And then the other thing that we're doing is starting to roll out something that we're calling Queen School, which is an opportunity for folks to learn from different queen producers, what their practice is, how they do what they do, um, what their strategies are, and also what their story is. And the goal of that whole whole series of workshops is that it will uh, start sort of breaking down the barriers of gatekeeping that happen with queen rearing. Because it's such a specialized practice, it's really hard to find mentors and guidance when you're trying to get into it. And so we're trying to sort of break that down. We're trying to show what a next generation of beekeepers are doing with queen production, how some of us are doing it differently, or how some of us are using more traditional models and hear those stories. And then we're going to roll all of that into a summer series where we'll actually teach the 10-day cell method, the 48-hour cell method, and the walkaway split method hands-on in our apiary here at They Keep Bees using queens, I mean, uh, bees from Anarchy Apiaries and working with the comfort hive style, which is what we do, which is what Sam does. Um, And then we're going to be able to bring a bunch of guest speakers into that. So I'm really excited about those two series because I think that's going to give people real practical application knowledge beyond just hearing about what the results of our study are. But I love talking about the results of the study because I'm like, look, any of these strategies actually work. <laughs> I love that. And I just want to say, reading the results of your study in this beautiful PDF was such a pleasure combined <laughs> compared awesome. to, you know, all the, you know, the text and the technicality of the, of the uh, official, you know, of the official papers that we, that we. Yeah. Read. Yeah. I mean, and the, we had to put together some pretty scientific papers with statistical analysis because that's part of the the funding requirements but then we were like okay this is great but 
you know, maybe a hundred people are going to read this. <laughs> right, right. Yep. <laughs> how do we, how do we make it accessible? And also how do we make it so that like, if someone can't come here and learn or someone lives in Japan and wants to try this, that they can literally go through the process. And like one of our PDFs takes you through, okay, like start here, select your breeder queen. Next step, make your cell raiser. And we have videos for every single one of those steps so that you can literally just plug and play any of the strategies and follow along with videos of us explaining how we did those things. And so it's, it's a really cool combination of both education, outreach, and uh, scientific research. You know, initially, pre-COVID, we had all these plans to travel with the content, but once COVID hit, that wasn't possible. So we got to really dig into making this PDF, these two PDFs, and making them super rich and beautiful because our funding for, for traveling and speaking became our funding for making these really great outreach documents. And how much do these outreach documents, uh, how much do they cost? Oh, yeah, they're totally free. <laughs> I just um, wanted to hear you say that. <laughs> I knew, I'm like, I love this. <laughs> yeah, uh, all of these outreach documents are totally free. Our Queen School Online, totally free. Um, you can definitely donate to our projects on our website. There's a donate button. And if you want, that money will roll into supporting scholarships and funding for future Queen School stuff. Uh, but because of the fair funding for all of that research, we were able to produce that content, uh, all the PDFs for free. And it felt really important to do that because we are trying to increase the access points for being able to learn about these things, right? And show people the value of the work that we did. So that feels important. I think we're still trying to decide about how hands-on Queen School is going to roll out, but there will definitely be a sliding scale, meaning people who are going to come take that hands-on class will pay something, but that it will be based on your income, your experience, your capacity, how far you're traveling from, et cetera, so that that too remains accessible because that's really important to us. Well, it's uh, it's all beautiful from that point of view. And also, I just love it that there's a real citizen science angle to this too. I mean, I do know yeah. that y'all did it all by the official book for re- for research, um, but there <laughs> but there is that that part of it too, which is exciting because for me, it made me feel like, um, you know, these, these experiments and these little tricks that I try that it somehow has, has value, uh, in the world. And, and so Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking that effect is going to shine onto young baby beekeepers who will go on to do who knows what, you know, wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good point. I mean, the big, a big part of when, when Sam was first start coming up with the walkway split analysis is that he really wanted to be able to share that with people, like share our worksheet with people so they could make their own splits and track those same variables and see what happened with their queens, right? And so part of our hands-on queen, queen school will be doing that work of tracking variables. Um, and that will become another sort of citizen science experiment to see, okay, well, we did this in a professional apiary environment with professional beekeepers, but what does it look like if we take those same skills and we apply them with folks who are just learning these these different skills and strategies? Like, do we get the same results? Do we get less refined results? It'll be interesting to see, looking at those variables, how people do when they're just starting out. And that might change how we advise you do certain things, right? And so we'll continue to refine 
recipes and guidance based on how difficult or easy it is to do the different strategies. I love it. It's it's alive. And I just have to say, I think all of this, if the more you, the, the quicker that new beekeepers get to propagating their own bees, then that that is the gateway drug <laughs> to becoming a lifelong right, beekeeper. Absolutely. <laughs> because it makes it more sustainable. I mean, if you're buying packages and nooks every single year, that's a problem. You know, I want to I want to see my customers come back because they want to add these to their apiary, but I don't want to see the same customer coming back every year and buying two or three packages because they lost the two or three packages they bought from me last year. That tells me like I need an intervention here. <laughs> I get it. I, I want get you it. to experience success and I want you to raise daughter queens from those apiaries. It's, it's sustainable from a financial standpoint. It's also sustainable from honeybee health standpoint. And so it's beneficial for you as the beekeeper and it's beneficial for the honeybees themselves. And so that's my desire. Like I'm fine with having to go find new customers and get new people into the beekeeping world, you know, but <laughs> I want you to be successful because if you're not successful, then you're not going to keep doing it. And we, we need, there need to be more of us who are engaging in these sustainable apiary practices and not just sort of dumping bees into hives every single year and not learning anything from them because that's the relationship. This is such a beautiful opportunity to learn from this non-human creature, to be humbled by everything that you don't understand, to be like in this portal of learning and opportunity that is entering into a honeybee hive, right? It's just like, this is another world. This is nothing like your world at all. And you have to completely change your framework to understand it. And that's so beautiful to me and such a great opportunity for us to unlearn some of our less desirable human characteristics. (laughs) I I just, I love hearing all that because I, throughout my life, I've been interested in, you know, 22,000 hobbies. And it, it was like the, the two, it, instead of serial monogamy, I did serial hobbies, you know? And um, <laughs> so, uh, but beekeeping, I, the deeper I have gotten, the more I know I, I will never be able to willingly get out, you know, because yeah. every, every single thing I do that's successful or failure creates 10 new questions about what what affected that and why did that happen and I felt that uh reading reading your actual paper you know about because I noticed there were these little flags planted all through the paper this is a topic that will need research this is a topic that will need research that's really um Mm -hmm. uh, and I love that because uh either for you later or for newer uh researchers coming behind you all the all the little dig here the flags are right there that was fun exactly (laughs) yeah I love that too I mean it's such a this is a, a hobby and a practice that can engage our curiosity so much if we are looking into the whys and the hows you know and it's it also can be really humbling because you make mistakes and you kill bees and you learn hard lessons. But if you can remain curious, there's so much to learn. And there's, like you said, it's like every question you answer produces 10 more questions. And that just means it's endlessly engaging. 